Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Cup Duet Reviews. My name is Jillian Robinson. I am the Associate Artistic Producer here at Cup of Hemlock Theatre. And today I am joined by the amazing Ryan Barakovich, one of our co-artistic producers. How goes it, Ryan? It goes. How are you, Jill? It goes for me as well. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, Today, Ryan and I have the great honor to unpack the world premiere performance and run of Hypothetical Baby. Uh, This is a show put on by the Howland Company. It is a solo show that is written and performed by Rachel Cairns and directed by Courtney Chung Lancaster. And it had a run in the middle of December here in Toronto. So at time of release of this episode, the Toronto run has closed. So today's uh, duet review is going to be about Ryan and I kind of unpacking the piece and uh, sharing our thoughts on it. And hopefully this piece gets more legs um, in our country, in the world, which we'll get into why it is so necessary. Um, but before we jump too far in, I'm going to bring us into our usual icebreaker. What are you sipping with us today, Ryan? Uh, so I have coffee. It's, you nice. know, this, this is, hey, this is our last review or episode of the year. So, Correct. you know, end with a classic drink and in a classic cup cup. So there you have it. How about you? What are you drinking? I also have coffee with uh, the, cheers, with the uh, silk peppermint mocha almond creamer that's in grocery stores right now. Not sponsored. Um, In one of my favorite mugs. uh, It's my Marie Disney mug. Marie is one of my favorite Disney characters because ladies don't start fights, but they finish them. And I just thought that's kind of relevant about what we're chatting about today. And a happy accident, my water cup, um, this is on one of the other episodes we just recently did too, but I recently got these water cups that based on how cold the beverage is, it changes color. So it's actually pink, but it changes, it's blue because it's cold and it matches my mug. Exactly. So I'm like, well, that's amazing. Um, yeah. And a wonderful happy accident that I need right now, because again, we'll get into it, but, uh, there's a lot of female things happening with Jill right now, uh, that any, any semblance of organization is key. And again, we'll unpack all of this as we dive in. Uh, but I guess we shall dive in, Ryan. And again, like I said, because this run has already closed in Toronto, we are not going to do a spoiler alert. Uh, we're really going to just open everything up. So I guess as like a tiny precursor, if you if you don't want to stick around, you can stop your episode now. If you aren't watching this at time of release, but you're watching it in anticipation of another future production Correct. of this that you are excited to see, Treat this as your spoiler warning. Apologies. The show's great. Go see it. But we're going to talk in detail about it. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I will give us a little synopsis of Hypothetical Baby. So like I said, it is a show uh, written and performed by Rachel Cairns. And it is an autobiographical solo show um, that has us come along the journey of her abortion. Uh, an experience of her going through an abortion and um it's not just that it's it's that to start and then you the entire sort of network of what having a uterus is sort of unfurls and the relationships you have how that impacts and the socioeconomic 
status and what it means to be a woman and in society. And there's, there's lots of things that, that come up, um, including throughout the whole show, you have Rachel, um, through speech and gesture, taking us on this storied journey, but then you also have, uh, a canvas behind that has a projection of facts about specific things that have to do with abortion and the female anatomy and, um, things that we might not know or things that we definitely probably don't know because it's not in the education system. Um, yeah. So we, we go on, we go on her journey of being an artist and being faced with, uh, becoming pregnant and deciding to have an abortion and the sort of physiological and biological breakdown of that. And also the, um, relationship she has with like her mom and her partner and her coworkers and how that all sort of peppers in. And it's neat, kind of the structure of the piece. Rachel constantly comes down stage and, and sort of not amends, but takes us back and be like, well, actually this is the beginning of the story, or this is where the story ends. And the sort of end comment about that structure we get is, well, the abortion is the event and anything leading up and anything beyond her life now, it is continuously existing. Um, there's a lot. I was very impacted by this. Um, being a woman, being an artist, um, this show really, really touched me. Um, a lot of emotions of frustration and um, you know, and it wasn't just me, like every woman in the audience was shedding a tear or nodding their head or under their breath laughing because something like this has happened to them or a loved one. And like I said, throughout the whole journey, um, Rachel has such an astonishing delivery. And when it comes to like the fact pockets of like trying to explain sort of the, her brain going a mile a minute because of hormones, which currently mine is because I'm about to get my period soon. And so PMDD is what I have, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, where my thoughts can be racing and I can go down rabbit holes and I'm bloated and my uterus is screaming at me. So like currently Jill's experiencing these things right now. Um, but just, just kind of going back to, to, yeah, the, the precision and the speed and in the fact pockets of the show that it's, it's information that we need and we've been longing for. And everyone in the theater is either learning or relearning or unearthing. And, um, it's not present in our society. It's not present in our education. So like it just watching the show again, meant a lot to me in multi layers, but even just the sheer fact of, being an artist, seeing a fellow female artist using the art form to be a platform to really like bring all of these everyday normal facts about women, not issues or, you know, crises about women to the forefront and making it personal, but educational in the same breath. Um, this has become like a synopsis and also my appraisal in the same breath. Um, That's good. 
we're not doing the spoiler shield for this one. Let it all just yeah. tango together. Tango together. I know that's been my like word of the latter half of 2023. Um, yeah. So, I mean, we, we can, we'll get into sort of like uh, the like practical sense and how she performed and, and what have you kind of what we usually do in these duet reviews. But um, I just, I really wanted to, in this synopsis, just take a moment of like, it's really refreshing um, and needed this piece to be on a stage. Um, constantly, again, me being a woman, having premenstrual dysphoric disorder, uh, like every month I go down the rabbit hole of and the pitfalls of what my reproductive system can do to my brain in everyday life. And uh, that changes when you become pregnant, that changes, you know, as you grow, that um, can be impacted throughout life. Um, and it's not linear and every woman is so, so, so different. Um, so it was really lovely just watching and listening to Rachel's story and finding so much of the camaraderie of what she's going through or what she's discussing. But in the same sense, living under that shell of like, oh my goodness, like all of us are so different. So like if we can find some sort of common ground and like um, a basic script of what happens inside of our bodies, that's a great place to start. And again, just using this moment to say like, it is astonishing to me still in 2023 that our education system and society at large knows very little about the female body, um, including women. Right. Uh, so anyways, this, this piece seemed like a beacon of light towards, towards that. Um, Ryan, do you want to share your thoughts as well? It's, it's funny. Like, as as we were leaving the theater and kind of like just talking about the show before, you know, sitting down to do this recording is I thought you said something interesting to me about how like, you know, this could might be like a pretty short review because like, you know, the, the show says it all, like, what do we have to add? And I think like, yeah, yes, that, but also just unpacking this kind of like what you're doing right now, this emotional response to it. I think that's what we have to add. Like, and, and yeah. you know, you get intellectualized all you want, but She's done an excellent job of intellectualizing this issue from so many different angles. Like the thing that I think is for me, and obviously I, you know, I cannot relate to all the things that you're talking about. And I recognize that of course, but like, I still thought the show was excellent and fantastic. And I, I, I actually had the thought occurred to me, like, I don't think, is this a flawless show? Maybe. Cause I can't actually think of a flaw. That's, that's feels like pretty high praise for it. Um, but yeah, like, I think what I think this show does so well is, autobiographical solo shows in particular can not always but can have a tendency to be very myopic that it is like let me tell you my story it is filtered through my individual subjectivity there's nary another body on stage for me to even discourse with even if i conjure up other characters that it's me talking to myself basically and my imagination of what that person would or is saying and that that is a a tendency and a valid critique that like solo shows in general have, and especially autobiographical ones of that nature. This show seems very aware of that as a, as a pitfall and did 
everything in its power to make this the least myopic show you've ever seen. And considering it's a show about her personal experience having an abortion, you you would kind of forgive it if it became myopic a little Mm -hmm. bit. And yet I think the thing that it does so brilliantly is that it it leaves no stone unturned that it it is very much undergirded by this personal narrative of this is the story of my abortion but she used that as the diving board her jumping off point to be this is a show about the complexities of reproductive health about what it means to you know have even the access to abortions and how that's changed through history and how it's different everywhere in the world how the pandemic factors into it how climate change factors into it how the the economic crises uh, many different types of crises all factor into it and i you know it's very possible that there is some facet of this discussion that she neglected to address but i am having a hard time thinking of anything because of how thorough and comprehensive this overview is and, and I think it, it speaks to the fact that uh, Rachel, as it says in her, her bio in the program that she has, and she mentioned it a few times, like around the performance that she has this podcast called Abortion, which mm-hmm. I haven't listened to personally, but now I kind of want to because I'm sure- We'll it's pop it just, in the comment or yeah, like we'll in the description in, below. We'll put, put it in the description because yeah, check that out. And I imagine it probably deals with a lot of stuff and, you know, the podcast format, hey, you're listening to a podcast right now is very, you know, a good way of putting people in dialogue and encountering with ideas about covering a topic from a variety Mm -hmm. of different facets so i I think this is very clearly a show that isn't just let me tell you about my personal experience and maybe you can understand the broader implications this is a show that takes those implications first yeah and and uses the narrative structure of her own personal experience to tell that larger story not the other way around Exactly. And a lot of that, again, kind of picking up what you're saying and hearkening back to how I was saying the, the use, uh, the use of the digitized screen behind her throughout, like the, in the story, she goes down a Google search rabbit hole, you know, searching so many things, but specifically when it comes to facts about abortion or like about the, um, being a person living with a uterus and, looking up what a placenta is and sort of the life history of the placenta. And it's in her story that shows up. And then we also see that on the back of the screen. And similar to when we enter COVID territory, like she's talking about how um, her experience, you know, with that transition in her life. And as she's speaking that, um, again, the board is is peppering like universal stats about certain things. And I, I think that was a brilliant sort of um, like accessory to her personal story because again, it was like once again, every step affirming that this is a universal, oh, this is way more than just my story. Like it's, it's, it's a representation and an, an information session about what I'm talking about. And I guess even to add to that, now we're getting into like the technical elements, but so not only was that screen for me, that um, extra step outwards to sort of globalizing this topic, but even her costuming, and I'm I'm always, I always love talking about my costuming. Um, she had just like a, a ponytail and then this white t-shirt tucked into some jeans with white sneakers. And because the main play space she was on is was like a sort of like white box so that also the projection shows up quite clearly 
anytime she's sort of standing and there are those facts or those articles on top of her, she's wearing white. So once again, it's her voice telling us these things, but it's the universal message that's just showing up on her. And she quite literally blends into the screen. Yeah. Like, I, I, yes. that's, that's such a great point. And like, it's, yeah, if she had been wearing like a darker color or something, she would stand of outside of the screen in front of it. And yet she becomes the screen through which this like very very literally she is the vehicle through which this larger story is told not something that stands in front of it or lets it stand behind her so yeah very well said yeah exactly exactly um yeah and, and i guess also too like we you and i have seen a lot of solo shows um or at least in, in, in something that really stands out to me and i actually talked about or we were talking about this post seeing the lehman trilogy of like when um you have minimalist set and like props and um you know sometimes you're as the actor monologuing or needing to use your entire instrument to play various different characters um usually it's infused with like a very specific gesture and a very i mean we even chatted about this on our it's a wonderful life um duet review as well but a very specific gesture and it's theatricalized Right. And it's very specific and harkened back to you so that it's like over the top in a way that makes sense because, you know, you're you're letting your audience know we're going back to this character. And what I really admired about this piece, and I think it goes back to talk like what you brought up of how um, this piece was trying its best really to not be myopic is um, in the tone of Rachel's voice like shifted when she was like her mom or her coworker and what have you. But it was very fluid, like, and we didn't need like the same, like theatricalized gestures to know who was in the scene or who was sort of a story guide with her in that moment. Um, so I, I really like that. Again, it's this fluidity and, and, and deterring away from these sharp gesture like sharp edges and we're we're gonna get into like feminine form instead of masculine form here in a second or for a second because I you know we talk I talk about this all the time of like you know the female structure of a play versus the male structure of the play and Carol Churchill is a pioneer of that right she was kind of one of our first female playwrights where she didn't write the beginning, middle, end, a Freytag's pyramid sort of vibe of structure of how we digest theater. Um, it was more how the female reproductive system and like our <laughs> menstrual cycle and how that goes. Um, so again, this is getting so specific, but there is something to that like very stylized, rigid gesture that is kind of male in a way of like it is a punch and then we're done it is a climax and then we're done whereas a fluidity and a build and using different elements to show character because like i said earlier we we aren't we aren't linear um Mm -hmm. you know us living with uteruses are not linear so (laughs) Mm -hmm. kind of infusing the the physicality choice with that um was brilliant Mm-hmm. And like something I'll add to that because yeah, she didn't do like a, like we were just talking about with it's wonderful life that every time uh, uncle Billy comes on the patting the head or that mm-hmm. sort of like visual semiotic language for this is this character, but shout out to the lighting designer who Julia Howman uh, mm-hmm. is her name because 
there was every time one of the recurring side characters was brought on even though rachel herself only manifested the difference with her tone of voice there was always a lighting cue that corresponded Correct. to each one the mother was always tinted red like mm -hmm. that was just such a i forget uh i'm trying to remember did the the partner have a specific color i feel like it was kind of like more like bluish incandescent tones maybe but yeah I, I don't know if that one was as obvious but that definitely was like a vocal shift was mm -hmm. like i also kind of like that too where it was like lighting shift or vocal shift mm -hmm. or maybe like a subtle gesture like these three like different like ways of showing difference of characters were implemented throughout the piece but not like we're not using the same way. I also want to give massive praise to the emotional, the stark emotional shifts that Rachel brings herself through in this piece. Um, because once again, that is so indicative of what it's like to <laughs> go from this super high emotional state to a super low or, um, yeah, it's it's very talking about I'm even noticing in this review, like talking about. Yeah, living with the like there are so many dips and peaks and valleys, um, but just to go from. How do I even unpack this? Like in the storytelling, right, like we wouldn't be inside a flashback with her and she'd be so emotional like you can see the tears welling in her eyes but then she would take herself out come down stage and like just be back to rachel 2023 discussing what we just saw or like where we're gonna go next and again it's a theatrical device of like just shifting sort of frames if you will but it's such a ripple effect of you can go from laughing and living your best life to absolutely breaking down cowering into a little ball in the shower like that's yeah like that's so so again i'm watching this as actor being like oh yeah that's awesome like look at those pivots look at those stark like emotional states and then it's like a talk about ripple effect i'm sitting there tears welling in my eyes because i'm like oh that's also how i acted this morning being a woman just a human <laughs> trying to get through whatever the hormone imbalance was doing in my own brain. Um, yeah. Sorry. That was me opening. I'm just okay. opening up again, not apologizing, but yeah. No, don't please don't. And, and like, I, I definitely like in addition to just all of the, you know, you know, female body health that you're kind of unpacking here, you know, it's very understandable that you found this story very relatable just in terms of like the whole subplots about the life of an actor and the economic yeah. precarity about that. Like I, you know, how many times did we glance at each other while watching? Like this is a conversation we just had yesterday that she's yeah. uh, unpacking here. I don't know if you want to speak about it. Well, that. Don't feel can like you, you actually, can you unpack the fig tree for us and then I'll pick up a fig sure. and expand and relate. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do my best. Spoiler alert, I've never read The Bell Jar. Um, but... hey, neither have I, but it's on the top of my list now. <laughs> yeah, um, apologies to the memory of Sylvia Plath. But uh, So there's one kind of, I, a sort of recurring uh, image in this play, although it kind of it really is focused in one scene in particular, that alludes to uh, this instance in The Bell Jar that I will do my best to describe. But again, I'm getting this secondhand from the play, um, where it's describing the life of a woman kind of being 
that you have this whole fig tree and you want to choose, you know, uh, the ripest fig, but you are plagued by this debilitating indecision. And which one do I pick? Each one represents a different option for my life. And the, the longer you wait to pick, the sooner that they will all dry up and wilt and you don't get to have any of them because you couldn't choose between them. I hope I'm doing that description justice, but that I see you nodding. You want to pick up the baton here? Well, I just noticed before you even went into it, you're like, this is a recurrent, you know, literary harken back to throughout the piece. I'm like, oh, yeah, because every single day it's what we think about. So it makes sense that it's a recurring theme in this piece. Yeah. Um, especially like you just said, and uh, like fully relating to Rachel being an actor and myself being an actor. Um, so choosing, I guess, talking about this through the lens of choosing um, a bit more of a freelancey contractual job as a woman. Um, every single day you are, I don't want to say plagued because that sounds so daunting, but you are faced with, especially, you know, me, myself being in my late 20s, you are faced with the decision waking up every morning. Um, I'm doing a career that I love. Financially, it's I'm getting by. My biological clock is ticking. I would like personally me, Jill, I would love to have a child, um, some semblance of a family down the line but I don't want to give up my career path that I've chosen. So I'm coming to terms with the fact that there might be a like, like abnormal societal or sort of non-traditional upbringing of my family or what my role as a woman will look like, because I will have to maybe sacrifice certain things or then you're sort of, then comes the list of negative questions of like, well, why are you doing this to yourself? Why you should be getting on having children as soon as possible? Or there's other career paths that you should be doing, or there's this and there's that. Or, and then don't even get me started, like the subconscious, like baked in the back of the mind of, I should be doing this chore. I should be doing, which I will say, as everyone knows, Ryan is my partner. He absolutely does not put any of this on me. This is just subconscious back of the brain things that us women sort of deal with. Um, and so, yeah, so with this, this image of the fig tree of you have all of these figs that you would love for them to be the juiciest, right? You would love for them all to be fully ripe and, and flourishing. And, but there's like, you're constantly seeing them shrivel up because the society we, we live in doesn't support like, oh, maybe I will have to take time. And this, again, this doesn't, this is where, again, it's a universal thing too. It's not just being an actor, you'll have this problem, but it's like women in general, like you could have the toppest tier job. And then if you and your partner maybe can't get a good childcare substitution when you have your child, you being the mother may have to step down from that top tier job to take care of your child. So like it's an inaccessibility of childcare and 
there's just like the entire support and spine of our society um, forces women to have to cut down. I don't even want to say shrivel, but like literally cut down some of the figs. Um, And we're left with at the end of every day being like scanning our options and thinking like, is this the right choice? Like I, if I can't have this, like, am I okay if I choose this? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. And it's, it's everything to, to date like that, that contributes to this, like the patriarchal society we live in the, like I said, inaccessibility to childcare, the lack of financial support to, for women to take time away from their career to raise their children. Um, this idea, this like, you know, unnecessary, but like pressure for once you get to the top of your twenties into your early thirties, it's like, okay, it's still like, look out, like you should have your kids now. Um, and there's still like stigma, right? Like if you decide to freeze your eggs or if you decide to not have children and, and there's just like this, you know, there's a people having that choice is, is not available for everyone. First of all, like in many cultures, it's still not, but even those who do choose to either not have children or freeze their eggs or do something that is again, outside of the norm, there's still external pressures, you know, whether it be from like, even like a sigh from like an aunt at a holiday party or something, right? Like, um, I just, again, I feel like I'm having another soapbox moment, but it's like every woman is so different and has their own trajectory and their own path. And we should just be supportive of whatever they choose that roadmap for them to be. Um, well, you know, and if they want multiple figs at once, they should be able to have it. And you want to jump, jump in here. I don't even know what to what to specifically pick up on. Like it's, yeah, it's it's interesting. I, it's a while back I read this book. Uh, it's called Forms by Caroline Levine Levin Levine. I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. Apologies if you're watching this. Um, but yeah, there's it's, it was kind of about it was sort of like about f- formalist literary criticism first and foremost, and how there's you know the deconstructive movement kind of you know, pointed out that forms are oppressive and we should do away with them. But her book was more about this kind of rehabilitating that forms are there, whether we like them or not. And then we kind of just need to have a more nuanced understanding of them instead of just trying to jettison them and hope if we cover our eyes, they'll go away. And one of the examples she uses in this book, which I think speaks to what you're part of what you're alluding to here and part of something that's brought up in the show here, you know, she's an academic. So a lot of her examples in real life situations come from academia. But how she said that there's, you know, the tenure clock when you can be expected to get on track to, you know, have a tenure track and full tenure job, and then the biological clock. And these are two forms that exist that are in direct opposition to each other. And it's tempting to say that the the tenure clock being the social construct and the biological clock being this biological construct that the tenure clock was invented to keep women out of academia. But what, what Levine, Levine, apologies, <laughs> points out is that the tenure clock was invented not to keep women out of academia, but it was at a time when women were just not even considered to be entering it. 
mm. at entering this particular workforce. So it was never even something that occurred to the people who set up this natural rhythm of this job calendar that it would need to one day compete with the biological clock. So it yeah. wasn't like, and this is, you know, when the people try to conceptualize patriarchy as just the evil men making decisions that will, like, it, it's these things are much more systemic and ingrained than that kind of cartoon villain approach to it that, but now we have women entering the workforce in academia, obviously, that's been happening for a long time. But now that we have, you know, this, we shouldn't retain this long antiquated idea of this is the natural rhythm of the tenure clock, because as a result, it is going to bar women from pursuing these jobs at their own reasonable time frame. Yeah. So, and like, I think that's kind of, I know you impacted and I think a lot more interesting and personal way here, but like, yeah, it's just recognizing that these are, you know, just because these two things exist and weren't even brought into existence to compete or force each other out doesn't mean that we can't be taking action to remedy the situation if we recognize that the tension exists between them. Is that kind of, do you think that's sort of doing justice to some of what you're saying here? Yeah, or yeah. Misrepresenting? yeah. No, no, no. I, I totally, totally agree with that. And um, one thing that I, I just kind of want to bring up this random factoid, which I feel like is kind of a direct um, tendril of what you just brought to the forefront here is um, at time of recording, the Canada Labor Code has mandated menstrual products in washrooms. In yeah, in Canada now. So I just want to, I want to, I, I want to toss that factor. I forgot that I, I had run into that earlier. Um, but yeah, that's, that hasn't been a thing until time of recording 2023. But now it means that people living with a uterus, when they are working in a federally mandated building, there will be pads, tampons, et cetera, accessible to them so that they don't have to bring their own. They, you know, don't have to miss a shift or be late to a shift because they have like these, we can't help what comes out of our bodies. <laughs> but we can help the, the way we structure our society we can help, around yes. accommodating that if we exactly. care to do so as we should. Absolutely. Another factoid I'm going to bring in to here too, because I think it's relevant. Um, a post that I came into contact with recently, again, post the show. This is, a, I guess, a brilliant um, instance of like our phones are listening because I've been having a lot of like facts kind of filter onto my feed post-show that I'm like, yes, give me, make me keep learning. And um, but let this sink in for a second. Breastfeeding for one year is 1800 hours. A full-time job with three weeks holiday is nine is 1960 hours. So not much of a gap there. And just going to show that I think we also need to reframe the sort of multi-layered humanness that people living with a uterus have to live their lives, like wade through the world, like especially those that are like wanting to have children that are, um, you know, have like a massive hormonal imbalance, any, anything that our reproductive system is causing, like impeding everyday life is like 
walking around with an elephant on your back. Like it's that much more difficult to do basic things. Um, and it, and it's not in like a, Oh, difficult, hold my hand, like rub my back. No, it's like, I can't help the way that I'm feeling. Yeah. Anyways, we went on a little tangent there, but uh, yeah, if this will be, I guess, just like not to get us back on track is what everything you're saying is not off track at all yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. Much within the world, but just to, I guess, pivot to something else about the show that I thought was interesting is thematically, I think more than well, I don't want to say more than anything, but certainly a recurring theme, I think throughout this is negotiating the dissonance between we have it pretty good and it's not good enough. And I yeah. think that is something that really started as early as the land acknowledgement. And it was a very mm -hmm. kind of very interesting, deliberately written land acknowledgement that was presented by Rachel herself kind of immediately before the show with very little separation between the land acknowledgement has ended and now the show proper has begun. Right. Where she, you know, did the kind of standard, you know, these are the, the, the indigenous tribes that are then, you know, the stewards of this land, but then kind of went into talking about it, it almost kind of gave me Cliff Cardinals as you like it vibes a little bit. I'm like, oh, this is going a little more deep than land acknowledgements yep. usually do. And maybe this is going to be the whole show, but um, spoilers for that show. But uh, but she kind of started talking about how, yeah, it's, you know, Canada is surprisingly progressive as far as, you know, modern nation states are concerned about reproductive rights for women and abortion in particular. And yet the great dissonance and irony with that is that it is, has this terrible ongoing track record with the way that it polices indigenous women's and indigenous people's reproductive rights, their mm -hmm. relationships mm -hmm. to their children, takes their children away. And acknowledging one does not discount the other, that we're surprisingly progressive in some regard, but very much not in other regards. Right. And I think so. And then, you know, having that as this, prologue to the piece that kind of goes into that became a recurring theme throughout that yes. wow why is everything so difficult and then learning from her mother just how much more difficult things were as recent as the 70s and then learning yep. from her pakistani friend that wow the long journey about the history of white feminism you just learned is actually a drop in the bucket compared to what people around the world encounter mm -hmm. and so on and so on and then how does the pandemic impact this yeah. and 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 hey what is my partner going through in this instant because while that is no by no means the whole story it's part of the story and deserves to be kind of interrogated in yeah. its own right and it's like what i said earlier on that like no stone is left unturned in the story and the nuanced portrait that kind of unfolds from all of this is even when things are better than they've ever been before or in this particular circumstances as good as anyone in history could ever claim it's still not enough and it's yep. and it pales in comparison to what like other people have to deal with the mm -hmm. struggles and none of those things disregard or discount any of the others it's just an interconnected web of yep. problems that eventually need to be resolved and are we're still working on it even in places that can boast some modicum of progress yeah wow that was very brilliantly said okay. as like a, a summative I'm... overglaze of of yeah that theme if I said it brilliantly, it's because Rachel said it more brilliantly. Yeah, and I'm just fair. To no, no, but her. but like that's good. That's good. Again, internalizing what we saw mm -hmm. on stage and and yeah, how it how it impacted us and and what are the next steps. This definitely is a piece too that because it's so educational and informative. Mm -hmm. Like you, 
you leave it, 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 to me, it like balances on the fence of, of course it's theater, but it's like I said, there's so many, there were so many pockets of like rapid fire facts mm-hmm. or like emotional states that like it, it, this piece I'm going to be percolating for several weeks and beyond and definitely left inspired and impacted and encouraged to continue learning and continue ad- being an advocate. This is marinating. I think also seeing this piece, again, bringing it back at like the peak of massive hormonal imbalance on my end. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to sort of think back on this piece when I get my brain back a little bit, my own personal brain. <laughs> but it's also um, okay that you encountered it in this state because it allowed it to impact yeah. in a way that it might have <clears throat> maybe wouldn't have if you were in a different part of your cycle. And maybe, you know, you would have still related, to, I'm sure, to a lot of what was being said. But, you know, it is, you know, it's appro- you're approaching it from a different perspective, yeah. you know, but you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. No, totally, totally. Um, yeah. Like this be, I I really hope this piece continues to have legs, um, like whether it's done in other cities around Canada to start, um, but then even like going international, um, and maybe even as well being educational tools, like, mm-hmm. um, in schools or high schools even, um, yeah. Cause a lot of what Ryan and I sort of continued to learn or maybe learned for the first time, uh, we certainly didn't get from our textbooks. Um, so yeah. And, and kind of like what we've been talking about this whole time of it leaves no stone unturned. And there's so many instances where there's multiple articles and Google's search engine tabs open. And I think like, that's what this piece asks you to sort of continue doing, um, post your viewing. So yeah, I mean, you and I, we could keep unpacking and talking, um, and new things will blossom out of this discussion, um, and for days and weeks and months and years to come. But any, any final things to sort of cap off the episode on your end, Ryan? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like there's so many more things I could say about this show, but I think we've, we've done a pretty good job of rinsing out sort of the core ideas and, and you've spoken so eloquently about all the personal resonances, which I think, you know, is very much needed and is what this show is going to provoke for so many people. So it's, I guess it's just a shame that this run is so short, but like you said, I'm sure it will find uh, an afterlife beyond this. And I, I, I look forward to seeing, you know, this, like you said, it could totally tour all over the place. I think this is definitely a show that would benefit from as yeah. many people who could see it as possible. Yeah. And I know we've, we've chatted, we've shouted out Rachel a lot in this. We shout out Julia, but uh, I also want to shout out Courtney Chung Lancaster, director, like impeccably directed. Yeah. Everything Courtney does is like absolutely stunning always. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the entire team on this, I think like it's was pretty perfect. Like you said earlier, yeah. like there's ne'er a flaw. Um, <laughs> if there is, I, I did not notice it. So well done. Right. It's, yeah, um, we don't say that often. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So again, echoing what you said, I hope this gets legs um, continuing on. And again, this was Hypothetical Baby. It was in Howland Company production happening here in Toronto at Tarragon. Um, it was written and performed by Rachel Cairns, directed by Courtney Chung Lancaster. And uh, yeah, the run has closed, but what a what an informative and needed piece for 
to be on our stages. On that note, I'm going to continue drinking water and sleeping and taking care of myself in the where I'm at in my cycle and it also being December. So cheers, everyone. Stay well. Um, stay healthy. As Ryan was saying, this is our last episode of 2023. Before we fully clink our mugs there, Ryan, let's do our little social plugs. Uh, where can people find and follow you? No need to find and follow me personally, but if you like me and like hearing my theater thoughts, most of them tend to live here on the cup. That's at COH Theater on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. It's Cup of Hemlock Theater on YouTube where you might be watching this. It's Cup of Hemlock Theater podcast in the podcast place where you might be listening to this. And while you're listening to podcasts, check out the Abortion podcast because it probably covers a lot of the material that this show did in in a different medium and format that I'm looking forward to tuning into. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Jill? Where can people find and follow you? People can find and follow me at uh, Jillian.Robinson96. That is my artist's Instagram account. I post covers of songs and upcoming projects. So keep your eyes peeled uh, for future happenings happening over there. And thank you as always, Ryan, for plugging the cup. (laughs) And on that note, let's grab our cups. Give a nice hearty 2023 closeout. Cheers. Cheers. And like I said, we'll catch everyone in the new year.